Hey, turn to your neighbor and greet him with a holy kiss. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't do that. Don't. That's a really bad idea. Not today. Uh, we don't want to continue to spread any, any viruses. Uh, so I had an illustration built into the beginning of my sermon today, really before all the coronavirus stuff came, but it kind of fits in. Uh, when we talk about the idea of things going viral, I, I'm not lying. That was kind of the, my opening introduction of how things go viral. And I, I was thinking about there, there are people out there on the Internet now who make uh, videos and stuff just for the purpose of them going viral. And they, they try to get it, something that makes it stand out, makes it go uh, viral is what we call it, like a virus, like a pandemic. It spreads from one person to the next. And the reason I want to talk about it is the power of what, what, what is the impact of you investing gospel investment into one person. Uh, and so uh, as we have our slimmer crowd today and, and a bunch of us on the internet, I, I meant to remind, if you are watching on Facebook, do me a favor, or uh, we actually have it live on YouTube as well. Uh, if, if you want to share that with people, you can go to our website and you can see that. Uh, but if you're on Facebook, share it so that, look, that's like a super easy way for you to continue to share. I will preach the gospel today. I promise you that. And if you'll share it, uh, it it's like a really, you just press a button and you get to participate in, in sharing. And so uh, if you go share that on your page, that helps uh, us as well as we have so many that will be watching uh, live from home uh, as we're dealing with the viral pandemic of coronavirus. Um, but even think not only viruses go viral, right? So for whatever reason, in the middle of this whole pandemic, somebody decided that the most important thing that they would have at their house would be toilet paper. And somebody else saw that somebody hoarding toilet paper. And so they thought, oh, apparently we're supposed to hoard toilet paper. And so they started hoarding toilet paper. And then it like just one by one, it just kept dominoing. And now for whatever reason, you can't find toilet paper anywhere. Right? That's, that's a great example of something other than a virus going viral. Uh, here, here's what I want to talk to you about, though, the power of one. We, we talk sometimes about the big numbers, and we'll share in here how there are 60,000 people within a three-mile radius of here that are unchurched. That we, that's our best estimate. Uh, it's not a firm number, but somewhere around there. And that can seem overwhelming. And so we really encourage you to think about one person, one person that you'll share the gospel with, one person that you will invest in, that you'll invite to come to church with you, you'll introduce to Jesus. And it can seem like, but will that really make a difference? And so I wanted to read you this uh, illustration. On a wall in the Museum of Natural Science in Chicago, there is a checkerboard with 64 squares. In the left-hand corner is a grain of wheat. And the display includes this question. If you doubled the amount of wheat as you move from square to square, how much would you have when you reach the 64th square? Would it be a carload? Would it be a truckload? And they say, here's how it works out. If you just doubled. So on the first square, you have one. And you double it to the second square, you have two. You double it to the second square, you have four. If you did that with grains of wheat, you would at the 64th square have enough wheat to cover the entire country of India six foot deep. Six foot deep. Now, this is the power of multiplication. Suppose you go out and reach one person for Jesus. One person. 
You go out and you, you invest. You, you invest in that one person. You invite that one person. You introduce that one person to Jesus. You intercede for that person. One person to Jesus. Stick with that person for six months. Help encourage and strengthen them. And disciple them. And at the end of six months, there's only two. We've only gone from one to two. Now at the end of the year, if you teach that person to do the same thing, and so you reach one person and you spend six months investing into that person and then you teach them to reach one person and spend six months reaching into that person. At the end of six months, there are only two. But at the end of the year, there are four, which is exciting if you do it again. Now at the end of, if you continue this every six months and everyone that you train continues that every six months, at the end of 18 months, there's eight. At the end of two years, 16. But do you know how many there would be at the end of 17 years? 17 years. More than the entire population of the world. More than 6 billion people. Stop and think about what you could do if you just committed to reach one. Now, we know that that's not always going to continue to multiply like that, but what if you tried to just reach one, and then you discipled that person to reach one? And what, what could happen in the power of that? Disciple-making ministry and evangelism is built on exponential growth, the principle of multiplication. Consider a comparison of disciple-making to just mass evangelism. So let's get a huge crowd and bring everybody in a huge crowd and let's share the gospel with a huge crowd. Suppose you're a really great evangelist and so you do mass evangelism and you do an event and a thousand people come to faith in Christ every day. At the end of the first year, there would be 365,000 new believers. That'd be incredible. That's the first principle of addition. 1,000 added every day. Suppose another person in one year led one person to Christ and spent that year building their faith, discipling them, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us and training that individual to grow in maturity and spiritually reproduce themselves in one other person. At the end of the first year, there would just be two disciple makers. But if you continue to lead 1,000 people Every day to faith in Christ, at the end of the second year, you have led 730,000 people to follow Jesus. The disciple maker at the end of the second year will have invested themselves into two more individuals. So at the end of that year, they would be able to spiritually reproduce themselves. And after two years, there would only be four disciple makers. But if this process were to continue and you kept leading 1,000 people to Christ every day, adding 365,000 believers every year, and at the end of 10 years, you will have reached 3,650,000 people. And at the end of 25 years, that number would be 9,125,000 people. The disciple makers, on the other hand, would keep on investing in one new person every year who does the same thing. And they invest in one new person every year. The numbers simply multiply at the end of 10 years. There are just 1,024 disciple makers. And at the end of 25 years, there would be 33,554,432 disciple makers, over three times more than the addition process. The, The math is on your side to pick one person.
One person every year. If, what if one person every year you invested in that relationship, you invited them to come to church with you, you introduced them to Christ, and you discipled them to do the same thing? One, one a year. And you just taught them to do the same thing. This is the model that Jesus... Now, Jesus isn't against mass evangelism. He did it himself. So I'm not saying that. But like, I think sometimes we rely so heavily on those mass evangelism gifts or, or people who have evangelistic gifts and we think they're the ones that are supposed to do this. It's easy to see that the process of multiplication is slower than the process of addition. It takes 19 years for the number of disciple makers to exceed the number of the first year alone. However, when the disciple making process reaches 20, year 26, they would reach 67,108 a number you couldn't reach by addition for another 158 years of leading 1,000 people to Jesus every day. The big difference in making disciples isn't just the numbers, though. It's the growth and maturity that happen in the person's lives and the disciple-making process. When you focus on disciple-making, you develop men and women who are mature in their faith and are able to spiritually reproduce themselves into others. I want to share two passages with you today and link them together uh, to show you the power of one. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in two different passages. First, we're going to be in John chapter 1. Verses 43 through 49, and then we'll be in Matthew chapter 13, 44 through 46. It'll also be on the screens. And so if you would, stand with me as we read God's Word. Uh, be pages 735 for the John passage in your Bible on, in the pew, and then 678 for the Matthew passage. <clears throat> John 1, 43 through 49. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good Come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now flip over to Matthew. 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would speak mightily to us. 
Lord, that as the world struggles in fear, uh, that we would abound in faith. Lord, that we would be a shining light in the darkness. Lord, please impact us deeply with your word today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The first thing I want you to see in this story um, is, is how Philip is compelled to tell, compelled to go and tell. We sometimes struggle with believing that we could be good evangelists, but um, I don't think you have to look far to figure out that you have the ability to do it. Once you've found something that you like, a, a restaurant, a movie, a book series, a hobby, uh, whatever it is, there, there's something that every one of you, if, if we're having a conversation and we get on a certain topic, you're going to light up and you're going to want to interject into that conversation. Because it's about your favorite sports team or your favorite hobby or your favorite kind of food or your favorite book series or something. There's, there are things that when, when we find so much joy in them, we are compelled to tell others about them. You ever had somebody so compelled to talk about something that they would interject it even when it had nothing to do with the conversation you were having? Right, you're having a conversation and like every time you have a conversation with a person, you know they're going to bring up whatever that subject is and they're going to interject that. And, 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 you're, and you're just going like, here we go again. They're talking about it again. No one asked about that, but here we are talking about it. Right, we, we, when we find great joy in something, we are compelled to go and tell. So John 1, starting in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. And he said to him, so we talked before about finding disciples and, and how Jesus has done that and called them to follow him. And it says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, found Philip, said to him, follow me. We talked about it as a rabbinical call. We talked about all the history behind that a couple weeks ago, what that means when Jesus says that. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And so Philip found Nathanael and said to him, so immediately he goes to a, a family member and he says, hey, we found him. We found him. You have to understand the Jewish people have known for a long time that God was going to send another Messiah. They've known this. They didn't know exactly how that would play out, what that would look like, but they knew a Messiah was coming. And so Philip runs to Nathaniel and he goes, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets, also the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now I love this. Philip is called to follow Jesus, but he immediately runs away. Now, why is this? Because following means going. Following means action. Following Jesus doesn't mean just going to church. Following Jesus doesn't just mean praying a prayer. Following Jesus means denying yourself and letting Jesus be in charge of your life. I've been having a lot of gospel conversations with my daughter lately. And with all three kids, with kids, if those of you who have kids, especially if they grow up in church, uh, I, I honestly, I struggle with sharing the gospel with kids. Not that I don't want them to know, but like, I, I don't want to just talk them into something uh, that isn't real. And so uh, my poor children, all three of them have had to like wrestle with me for seasons before I would even affirm that, that God was like, I just want to be so careful. And, and so one of the things that I've been talking with Magnolia about with the gospel is 
is that when we, when we surrender our lives to Christ, when we become a follower of God, a follower of Christ, we, we surrender everything to him. It's not just about eternity. It's about handing our lives over to him. And so I try to think, how do I explain this to her in a way that she could get it? And I thought, imagine we all as a family decided we wanted to go out to eat. And, and so we were going to go somewhere. We were talking about where we were going to go. And then Audria, my wife, says, hey, I've got somewhere I want us to go. I just want to take you. I'll surprise you. Well, I trust Audria. And so what I would do at that moment is I would take my keys out of my pocket and I would hand those keys to Audria. Now, handing those keys to Audria means she gets to decide where we go, how fast we go there, and the route to which we get there. <laughs> I said, when we trust our lives to Jesus, it's like taking the keys to our life and handing them to Jesus, right? We, we take the keys to our life, and so we don't get to decide anything about it. We don't decide our career, our ambitions, our, our, our future mate, our, like we hand, it's, it's surrendering everything over to Jesus. Handing your life to Jesus, I want to show you in this passage today, will cost you everything and be worth it. If I could, if I could give you one sentence for my sermon today, that would be it. Following Jesus will cost you everything and be worth it. So why, why does Philip run as soon as he starts following Jesus? Because he found the one. And he's compelled to go and tell. And so he goes and he wants Nathaniel to know. Following means going. He wanted to invest in Nathaniel's life. I would encourage you, we've been talking about interceding and then investing. Invest in someone's life. And I, I want you to think about how to invest in people's lives. And invest, invest in someone that you want to share the gospel with. But here's what I would encourage you to. Invest in somebody here at this church in a discipleship relationship where you meet on a regular basis, discuss God's word, confess your sins to one another, and pray for each other. Discipleship. What if, what if we didn't just sit here and hope that by osmosis of listening to sermons we would get transformed? What if, what if you realized that this was just like the, the launching point, but from here, what you do from this Sunday to next Sunday will more determine your spiritual maturity than anything that happens right now? Invest in one lost person and invest in a discipleship relationship that's also investing in you. When you understand the value of the kingdom of God, you will want to share it. You will be compelled by awe of how great God is. You will be compelled by a hope that Christ gives you. And you will be compelled by an urgency for others to know. And then, so what does he do? He gets to him and we'll see he's compelled to go and tell. And then through the interaction, he invites Nathaniel to come and see. So invest in that relationship of that lost person, then call them to come and see. So let's look at what happens in the story. Verse 46, John 1, 46 through 49, it says, Nathaniel said to him, so, so Philip in verse 45, it said, we found him of Moses and the law, and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody say Nazareth. Nazareth. The son of Joseph. Now Nazareth does not have a good reputation. 
Nazareth is, is the sticks. It's the woods. It's the middle of nowhere. And so Nathaniel's response to this in verse 46 is he says to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So you have to understand what's happening here. When we go and share the gospel, one of our biggest fears is, what if they ask me a hard question? So Philip brings good news of the Messiah to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's first response is a question. Now, if you read the passage, does Philip answer his question? No. He doesn't answer it. What is Philip's response to this question? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Here's the deal. We've got to move beyond these fears that keep us from sharing the gospel. What if they ask me something I don't know? Who cares? Let them ask you something. You're not selling yourself to them. This is, not, this is not, hey, believe in me and buy into me when you go share the gospel. What if they go, well, you, you hypocrite. You're right. I am a hypocrite. What if, whatever their objection, just say, look, I love we sang earlier, taste and see that the Lord is good. I want you to believe in the kingdom of God so much that you just want to introduce people to it. And you know that once they taste and see, they'll know the Lord is good. It's not up to you to answer all the questions. So you can invest in that relationship and then you invite. Just come to church with me. Come sit in Bible study group with me. Come worship with me. The Bible says that when lost people see the children of God, worship him in authenticity, that God does something in their hearts and reveals himself to them. That's God's job, not yours. It's not up to you how they respond to the gospel. If your, if your loved ones and your friends and your family members die and spend an eternity in hell because they've rejected the gospel, you can sleep at night with peace that that's not on you. But if it's because you didn't tell them, we've got to tell them. We've got to go share it. We've got to move beyond our fear. Yes, they might ask questions. You're not, it's not your job to have all the answers. It's not my job to have all the answers. Come and see Jesus. I, I've told many of you before, I, I've literally had on two occasions in my life, atheists ask me to debate them. They've asked me, I want you to debate me. And we would get into a debate about the existence of God. And two times I have had different people who call themselves atheists admit defeat. And they said, you won the debate. And I, go, I would get excited and I'll go, great. Are you ready to give your life to Christ? And they'd go, No. I still don't believe any of that stuff. You just said I won the debate. Why would you not? Because I don't believe any of that stuff. I read a story about an apologist who, that was his job, is to debate atheists. And he was in a diner trying to share the gospel with an atheist. And he's arguing with him, debating with him. And he had this guy that he was discipling with him. who was a brand new believer. And they were arguing way over his head. And, and they had been arguing, debating for, for, for some time. And he just looked at the guy and he goes, listen, I don't really know all these questions you guys are debating. I'm going to tell you this. I was lost and I was without hope. And then I found Jesus. And it changed everything for me. And it gave me hope and it gave me purpose. And now I, I know who I am. And the story, at least in that book, says that that guy then received Christ. After debating with one of the greatest apologists and having all this debate and all this conversation, listen, you don't have to have all the answers to every question. Invite people to come and see who Jesus is. 
Invite them into your life. Now, there's a prerequisite to this a little bit. Uh, here, I'm careful to, I want to be really careful how I say this because some of you will misinterpret what I'm saying and use it as an excuse. We, we tend to interpret things the way we want to interpret them. Have you ever seen the chart that's, that's it's trying to convince you to stop drinking soda? And so it says, one can of soda equals six donuts of sugar. Anybody ever seen that? My favorite reply I've ever seen on social media with that is, is it wrong that my takeaway is that donuts are healthier than I thought they were? <laughs> we, we love to interpret things how we want to interpret them. And so I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to tell you how not to interpret this. If you're going to invite someone to come and see the value of the kingdom of God in your life, then you certainly need to already value the kingdom of God in your life. Now, here's how some of you have just immediately interpreted that. Well, then I can't invite anybody to come and see in my life because I'm just not good enough. All right, squash that. That's not the way you're supposed to interpret that. That's a really poor excuse. So what, here, here's what that is, is when we talk about the value of the kingdom of God in a minute, I, I would encourage you, it, this is not something that has to be a long process. Today, today, decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in the value of the kingdom of God in my life. Yes. And then I'm going to invite others into that. And so when I, you can invite them to come to church with you. You can invite them just into your own life. You can invite them over to your house for a meal. I would encourage you, think through this. How, how can you use and leverage your life and your sphere of influence to share the greatness of the kingdom of God with others? Now, we have to understand how great the kingdom of God is. So let's, let's, let's move from this John passage over to Matthew. Go back to Matthew chapter 13. This is... If I had to pick one short passage that just so communicates how great God is, uh, this is one of my favorite. This would be in, at least in my top three. Uh, so let's look first at verse 44. The treasure in the field. The kingdom of heaven. So, all right, let's pause for a moment. When we say kingdom of heaven, sometimes in the Bible you'll see kingdom of God. Sometimes you'll see kingdom of heaven. There are some different views on why those different things are used. And so some of you may disagree with my interpretation here. That's fine. Uh, We can discuss that over a cup of coffee. Or when you get the mic, you can share your version of what you think this means. When I see kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, based off of my study and this, my interpretation is Jewish people... We're always very careful uh, to, on the don't use the Lord God's name in vain. And so one of the ways they would protect themselves from this is to try just not even to say his name. And so they would use different words instead of God. Uh, and they were leading to that. And so you'll see uh, more often than not in the book of Matthew, which is primarily written to a Jewish audience, more so than the other Gospels, he will use kingdom of heaven more often than kingdom of God. Now, kingdom of God is in Matthew. It's a couple of times, not often. Uh, so it doesn't exclusively do that, 
but more than anybody else, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. Now we know in some parallel passages and other gospels, it's kingdom of God. So I, I believe those are interchangeably. So what does kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven mean? Uh, it means God's reign and rule in your life. So in other words, it's back to that illustration of handing God the keys. Remember earlier when I told you that if, when you hand God the keys to your life, following Jesus, surrendering your life to Jesus will cost you everything, but it will be worth it. The kingdom of God isn't just praying a prayer, getting baptized, and sitting in a pew. The kingdom of God is handing Jesus the keys. Not just on Sunday morning, but when you leave here, tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, he has the keys. So everybody following with me? When I say kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, I mean fully trusting in God to lead your life. And what Jesus says is the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then he covered it up and then in his joy, everybody say joy. joy. This, I love that this word is here. Then in, listen to listen to what's being said here. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has so he can buy that field. Now, understand, when Jesus gets a parable, sometimes we have a temptation to want to go on a little side thing so we, so we can buy the kingdom of God. No, no, no. He has one point here. One point. Parables usually have one point. Don't, don't get off on some tangent. One point. That the point is, this guy found something so valuable that it's so significantly worth more than everything else in his life that with joy, he sold everything he had so he could have that one little spot of land because of what was there. Listen to me. Taking the keys of your life and putting them into the hands of Jesus Christ is the kingdom of heaven. And it's worth losing everything about you. It's worth losing your identity and who you think it is. It's worth losing your career and what you think it's supposed to be. It's worth losing your ambitions and what you think those are supposed to be. You've got to understand that Jesus has a much better plan for your life than you. Put the keys in his hand. Live that and then invite people in to see it. Introduce people to that. When we introduce people to Jesus, don't just introduce them to church. Don't just introduce them to, let me make your marriage a little bit better. Don't just introduce them to, how do you be a better neighbor? Don't just introduce them into just pragmatics of what it looks like in the temporary. Introduce them to the kingdom of heaven that, yes, it'll cost you everything. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But then he tells us here, it'll be in our joy that we'll deny ourselves. This is, this is how great missionaries have been able to say things like, what sacrifice? David Livingston. What, what sacrifice? It's not cost me anything. I, you, have, you have any idea how much I've gained by this? Don't just, don't just have somebody over for a meal. 
Don't just invest in their life. Don't just say God loves you. Don't just wave and be a nice person and think that that's your Christian duty. Introduce them to the kingdom of heaven and how great it is. Pastor Mike Reed has been on with us on Wednesday nights teaching us how to share the gospel and understanding our identity in Christ and our call to be fishers of men and a search and rescue center. And, and this last Wednesday, he started teaching us how to share our 15-second testimony. And he said, think about your life before Christ and think of two descriptive words. And so I, I say, I was arrogant and aimless. That's who I was before Christ. I really thought a lot of myself and I had no direction. I was arrogant and aimless. And then he said, think of two words that describe uh, when you met Christ, what it was like when you came to salvation. And so I say, I was, uh, let me tell you about me. I once was arrogant and aimless. And then I realized I was loved and forgiven when someone introduced me to the gospel. And then you come up with two words in the next category, describe what your life has been since then. And I said, I've realized finally that I have a purpose and direction in my life. I was arrogant and aimless. And then I realized through the gospel, I was loved and forgiven. And now I have a purpose and direction. And then, look, this is not the whole gospel. This is just a way to get the conversation started, right? And so you come up with those two words in each category and share that with somebody and say, do you have a story like that? And then they go, what in the world are you talking about? Well, great. Now you get to actually share the whole story, right? Just sharing that 15 seconds is not going to be enough. That's not sufficient, the whole thing, but it can get the conversation going. So here's what I tell you. If you don't know that, if you don't have that story, there's literally nothing I would rather do with my life than help you find that story for your life. I was arrogant and aimless until someone introduced me to the gospel. And then I realized I was loved and forgiven, and now I have purpose and direction. I hope that you have a story like that. If you don't, I would encourage you, find that. Find the, the value of the treasure in the field and be willing to share that treasure with others. And then we go to the next two verses and, and, it's, and, and it's told again. Now, when Jesus repeats things, he repeats them on purpose. Repetition is something he does for emphasis. And so this is one of those rare occasions where Jesus gives us a short parable and then another one that has very much the same thing in it, showing you just how important this is. And so he goes from treasure in a field that it's worth selling everything you own, every possession you have in order to have the kingdom of heaven in your life, to hand him the keys is worth it. Now he goes to another story that we may lose a little bit in our modern context. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What, what we may miss here is the ante has been upped a little bit. Uh, it doesn't take you long to think about it. Where do pearls come from? The bottom of the ocean, right? Am I right? Oysters. Now, if you wanted to go diving for pearls today, what would you do? Well, you would get a tank and a mask and a wetsuit and you would go diving down. They didn't have that. So for somebody to dive down and try to find pearls amongst oysters was risking their very life. Pearls at this time that this was said by Jesus were more valuable than gold, more valuable than diamonds. 
It was the most valuable, rare, jewel-type thing in that time, in that context. And partially because there was such great personal risk to go get a pearl. They were so rare, because not only were they hard to find, but it was a very risky venture for your life. Following Jesus may very well cost you everything, but still be worth it. I want to tell you one last story. Um, being of Scottish and Irish heritage, there's a great holiday coming up. It's one holiday where everybody wants to have a big red beard, like me, on St. Patrick's Day. Now, I don't know if you know the real story of St. Patrick, but you should, because it's actually a really great story. Uh, it has nothing to do with green beer or leprechauns. St. Patrick's not even Irish. Did you know that? He's not even Irish. He's Scottish. Um, and so St. Patrick was born in Scotland. His father and his grandfather were Christian lay leaders in the church. But at age 16, Patrick was kidnapped or taken captive by Irish pirates. Irish pirates stole Patrick, took him to Ireland, and made him a slave. Now, his job as a slave was to be a shepherd. And as he was shepherding the sheep, he would remember he didn't have a Bible. There had not been a movement of the gospel in Ireland up to that point. And so he would remember the scriptures that his mom would teach him about the Lord being a good shepherd as he was shepherding sheep, as he was a slave. And he would remember these things. And, and he, in his story, comes to saving faith while being a slave in Scotland. For six years, he was there in Scotland as a slave in, 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 Ireland, in Ireland. And then he escaped Ireland, got back to Scotland at 22 years old. But as he began to grow in his affection for the Lord... God planted a love in his heart for the people of Ireland. And so he intentionally returned to the very place that enslaved him as a missionary so that they could experience the kingdom of heaven. And after 30 years there as a missionary, approximately 120,000 people were converted. 365 churches were started because he was willing to hand Jesus the keys. It's only the gospel that would lead somebody to go back to where they were a slave, to compassionately and kindly. It's only understanding the kingdom of heaven. See, when you understand the kingdom of heaven, that's not even a weird story. When you understand the value of the kingdom of God, that's not strange. When you understand the kingdom of God, it's not strange when... When Jim Elliot says, you can't give up what you never had. It's not strange to say, I would give everything in my life just to have the kingdom of God in my life when you really get the value. And when you get the value of that, like Philip, you will be compelled to go and tell others. You will invite them to come and see the power of the kingdom of God. And you'll invest in their lives. Now, there are things that keep us from this. There are things that keep us from being obedient in this. Fear. But it's a weird fear, right? When you, really, when you, when you do a value comparison of what we're afraid of versus what's at stake. What are we afraid of? 
Afraid of it being socially awkward. We're afraid of being looked at as a weird person. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of not knowing what to say. We're afraid they're going to ask you questions we don't know the answer to. So out of fear, we often refrain. But compare the weightiness of your fears to the weightiness of their eternity, their hopelessness. And let that give you a bit of urgency. But not just urgency. Remember, we don't just need urgency. Urgency will only get the ball rolling. But awe, worship, understanding the kingdom of God will give you a movement. It it will compel you to, to want others to experience what you have. Have you ever experienced something so good, whether it be a movie, a book series, a hobby, a, a food, that you, 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 were, you just wanted somebody else to try it? And so you tried so hard, please just try it. Now the crazy thing with, with the gospel, you can't just try it, but you can invite them to just come and see. Come invest yourself in life. And then you just pray that the Holy Spirit will do the work because you can't talk anybody into anything. You can... Like last week's story, you can just lay them at the feet of Jesus. Have all urgency, hope, and share that. I'm going to ask you, will you be intentional? Will you be brave, courageous? Share the gospel with somebody this week. Realize the value of the kingdom of God. Find a way to be accountable. This is another value of that discipleship relationship you should have. Realizing, and I'll say it again, the the greatest factor in your spiritual maturity has little to do with what's happening right now. There's much greater value and benefit to your spiritual maturity what happens between this Sunday and next Sunday and what you do one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three with somebody else, holding each other accountable, praying for each other, discussing God's word together as you grow. Mature as a disciple maker. Mature as a disciple. Keep handing Jesus the keys. Every day. In Romans chapter 12, it says we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. The problem is a living sacrifice is we keep crawling off the altar. So you have to keep handing him the keys. Over and over. And then you'll take them back. And he'll let you. And then you'll be like, oh, this isn't working. Take them back. And it, I'm going to be honest, for the rest of your life, it's going to be a lot of give and, give and take. But here's the thing. If you'll commit to that process, if you'll commit to it, eventually it just becomes easier to just leave them in his hands. <coughs> As you see his faithfulness, you see the value of the kingdom of God. And you just leave it with Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to realize the value of the kingdom of God. So here's what I'd like for you to do. There should be a connect card somewhere around you. Uh, last week, if you were here, uh, you don't have to do a new one, uh, but last week I asked you to take a Connect card, let us know who your one is so that we can pray for, you, pray for that one. Uh, I've, been, I've got a list, I've been praying for those. Uh, or, or if you've got a specific prayer request, um, you, can, you can write your name on the front and then on the back, write that prayer request. If you want it to be for my eyes only, all you gotta do is fold it in half. And if you'll fold it in half, then that'll be everything that you need to know. Um, and so we, we, ne- we never did place the offering plates at the, uh, we need to do that. Somebody, come do that. Start placing offering plates. We were supposed to place offering plates 
at the doors on our way out so that we're not passing offering plates here in a minute. Um, so, as, but here's why I wanted to make sure we do that. You can leave your Connect card in the offering plate on the way out um, and just set those by the door. And if we want to man those, however you want to do that, but each door, when we leave today, you can drop your offering as well as you can drop your Connect card there um, in the offering plate. For your prayer request, for your one, but I encourage you, be, be intentional, be accountable, and be so in love with Jesus that you recognize the value of the kingdom of God. Uh, I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come up, and we're going to take an opportunity to respond to God's word and his call. I pray that we would be not only um, hearers of the word, but doers of the word. I'm going to be standing on the front pew as we worship together. If you want to come talk to me about the gospel, I'd love to do that. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I'd love to do that. Uh, But let us know who your one is so we can be praying with you. Uh, If you're watching on Facebook, send us a message. Let us know who your one is so that we can pray with you over your one. Um, And let's make sure that in the midst of the world being full of fear, that we would be driven by faith.